0: This Catholic dude abides. Yeah. All right, episode 61. Kind of a letdown after that big 60th celebration last week. <laughs> Did you know all reformers were born after the year 1480? talk about the Reformation in 1517, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg church door, challenging Catholic Church's abuses of indulgences. It was the birth of Protestantism. Within five years, the floodgates had opened and there were a lot of reformers, not just Luther. Men who were breaking off from the Catholic Church, forming their own religions. But all those men were relatively young, under the age of 40. No one knows why. But a common explanation among historians and other thinkers is 1492. Christopher Columbus, the New World. Okay, people weren't shocked that the world wasn't flat. That's a freaking myth. Moreover, it's a myth propagated by Catholic haters of the 18th and 19th century who never lost the opportunity, no matter how freaking bogus, (laughs) to discredit the Catholic Church. Washington Irving, for instance, is Jeffrey Burton Russell thinks was chiefly responsible for propagating the idea that the Catholic Church thought, or taught, that the earth was flat. If you're interested in this, by the way, get Russell's book, Inventing the Flat Earth. Um, I don't have it, I've never read it, but I have read large swaths of his four volume History of the Devil, which is really good, and so I'll vouch for his work in general. Anyway, People were shocked though to learn there was a whole nother freaking landmass. <laughs> One whole detached from that bundle of Europe, Asia, and Africa. It's like wow, there is like a whole new world over there. And it disrupted a worldview that had been in place for 1300 years. The psychological shock of such a thing can't be measured. It especially can't be measured on a boy whose mind is still growing. So think of it, you're 12, 13, and now what's been implanted in your mind at this very crucial age, and this is like the stand-by-me age if you saw that movie, (laughs) what's planted in his mind was a fact, an indisputable fact. Authority was 100% wrong on a huge freaking issue. That fact was stamped on the 12-year-old or 10-year-old boy's mind. And even if you're a little bit younger you you still kind of came of age realizing everyone was told something wrong. Everyone you knew, your parents, everyone you knew was told something that was 180 degrees wrong. Well, that boy might begin to think, what else might authority be wrong about? Can authority ever be trusted? And speaking of which, what is, <laughs> what is the biggest authority in the world? Hmm. In Europe, Middle Ages, or coming out of the Middle Ages, what? Oh, the Catholic Church—that's <laughs> that's the biggest authority in the world. Now, of course, no one claims this was an explicit thought process. There might have been. I mean, who knows? I don't don't recall any reformers saying, "Hey, we know that there's a whole new world that no one told us about, and all the authority is wrong, and therefore the Catholic Church's authority. Therefore, it must." Be. I don't think he <laughs> thought like that. I don't think it was ever explicit. But it can't be denied that the discovery of the new world must have definitely shifted the mental furniture a lot, especially in young minds that are so malleable. And that's believable, and I think highly likely that it directly led to the Reformation. Even if there's no conscious trace of it, we know through modern psychology that unconscious forces play enormously into our thought processes and therefore play into world history. Therefore, those historians and other thinkers who conjecture that 1492 led to 1517, uh, I think I tend to agree agree with them. But that's not why I'm talking about it. (laughs) I want to point out that a similar thing had happened 1800 years earlier. Worlds collided. Alexander the Great. And I'm going to take a quick detour here about the importance of history you need to be able to put Alexander the Great into context to understand what I'm talking about here. I mean, historical context. Fourth century B.C. And you think, yeah, Sheska, I never ever remember all those dates and all that crap. I was like, no, yeah, you can. Because there's one date that every kid, when he hears it, with any context whatsoever, he never forgets it. It was Socrates had to drink hemlock in 399 B.C. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, 399 B.C., yeah. Okay, latch onto that like a pit ball onto a bloody arm. (laughs) Okay, latch onto three ninety nine because with Socrates then you know oh yeah yeah he was Plato's teacher. Okay, great. Then you know well wait Plato then was Aristotle's teacher. Oh okay. Aristotle was Alexander the Great's teacher. So you've already you've already established a pretty good nexus there between philosophy and history, and then that'll then feed into what we're going to talk about next. So again, just. I've mentioned in previous podcasts, if you're trying to get a historical, ah, what do I want to say? In a historical sense, I'd, I'd encourage you to latch on to 10, 20. If you're really freaking ambitious, <laughs> you put the bong down <laughs> and memorize 30 days, 30 years over the past, say, 3,000 years, and I'll give you a good reference point. And I've gone through these before. Well, actually, I never have. And That'd be a good podcast segment. Go through and give you like my top 25 dates you ought to memorize. And put them on the spectrum of history, you know, starting back with say uh, Moses leaving, actually you know, leaving Egypt, which, to my way of thinking, is kind of like the beginning of historical time, even though people say, well, that's not historical either because it's all prehistoric, pre-writing down history. But I think we can pretty much place that at, I think, around 1200 BC, and bring it all the way to say that the United States Civil War, and maybe do a whole separate <laughs> a whole separate segment on that in the 20th century. I'm just Shocked that uh how people how many kids don't know anything about twentieth century history either. It's like how most of you explained to, explain to him World War One came before World War <laughs> two. The one or the two seem to help but don't seem to clench it sometimes. Alright, I'm kind of ranting and exaggerating. Anyway, go back to Alexander the Great. This guy established an empire that stretched from Europe to India. And it's hard to imagine what more he would have done if the hangover hadn't killed him. <laughs> at age 33, (laughs) in 323 B.C. Okay, after him, his generals had a civil war, and then they divided the empire among themselves. There were four of them. And then that continued the Greek hegemony that Alexander started. they called the Didachean Empires. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. These Didachean Empires eventually fell to the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire out east, which led to the New Persian Empire. And speaking of the new Persian Empire, there was an old Persian Empire. There are two great Persian empires. The old Persian Empire was the one that Alexander conquered. Uh, it was the subject of that movie 300, if you saw it, which I kind of liked. Kind of shallow, but was, uh, I, I, I enjoyed it. I think it's that there was a like roadhouse, like manly films you got to watch. You might watch more than once. So you had the old Persian Empire that did a lot of what Alexander did. You know, actually tried to go into Europe where the Greek states repelled them. And I guess I'd like you to focus mostly on 500 BC, because that really is the rise of what I'm talking about, the worlds colliding. The old Persian Empire through Rome and the new Persian Empire, that's been called by certain thinkers the age of ecumenical empires. It was the first time that empires really, really stretched over numerous cultures, societies. You had things that kinda of did the same thing like the Babylonian Empire, uh the Assyrians, but not like this, not like the new Persian, not like the old Persian Empire, not like certain not like Alexander the Great. And these ecumenic empires they resulted in huge movements that disrupted local life. The city states in Greece and the Phoenician states they collapsed. No longer was your world just your city and the agricultural land right around it. Your world was, now, well, the whole world. I mean, kind of like, they started talking in the 1970s about, you know, it's a small world after all. (laughs) And now we talk about the digital world bringing everyone so much closer. A very similar thing happened 1800 years ago. It's like, wow, my little world is just that. It's just my little whatever. It's not the world at all. The whole world is not brought to my doorstep. Or you are taken to the world's doorstep. Because with these ecumenical empires came huge demographic shifts. Huge enslavements. Population shifts. Cultures collided. Often through migration. Or just like what happened in, in Jerusalem, and in Judah, when the Babylonians took over. Just whole populations uprooted and taken away. There's also increased trade. People coming in contact through just buying and selling stuff. This resulted in a huge loss of intellectual cohesion. I mean, people psychologically were probably worse off than LeBron James in China. (laughs) The Hong Kong outcry. Financially, fiscally, emotionally, spiritually. (laughs) They were hurt throughout the known world. You could say there was a loss of meanings as institutions, civilizations, and ethnic identities were just broken down, eliminated, washed together. And this led to just a general attempt to regain meaning. I mean, what does it mean to human existence? And you saw a flourishing of various thinkers and movements about this time, trying to make sense of it all. You've probably heard of Stoicism. That may have been one of the biggest responses to this crisis of meaning, and it's a philosophical doctrine that's with us today, as evidenced by the success of Ryan Holiday's *The Daily Stoic*, which sounds like a book definitely worth checking out. I have not checked it out, but it sounds like a sounds like a splendid book. He was on Econ Talk. I don't know, a couple years ago, mystery cults arose. Pythagoras, I mean, he was kind of a forerunner, maybe a proto-mystery religion. But there are all the, the sun cults, the Orphic cults, all these mystery religions trying to make sense of this of this new world, so to speak. You had apocalyptic movements, I think the world's coming to an end, including within Judaism. People thinking, well, this, the world's coming to an end. Everything's, everything's changed, everything's coming to an end. You had Manichaeism. Into this milieu, you had Christianity. In the fullness of time, St. Paul would say, the shake-up resulting from the ecumenical empire age and the resulting day-to-day stability of the Pax Romana, you know, the Peace of Rome, because Rome came in, a lot of the instability stopped, and things were kind of cool. Made widespread trade and communication possible. I believe it made the time ripe for the incarnation people were psychologically disposed to something new and because the Roman Empire put some stability on things for hundreds and hundreds of years the good word was able to spread but right with Christianity came another powerful movement almost like an evil twin who was born with Christianity raised with it antagonistic to it two babies hated each other from the start and that's Gnosticism For the Christian, creation was good because it was created by God. And God thought highly enough of creation to give himself flesh and come to it in the form of Christ. For the Gnostic, creation was a prison. It's all disorder. It sucks. It needs to be escaped. And Gnosis, which means knowledge, offered the way of escaping it. So right off the bat, in the very premises, right in the sinews of these twins... Not identical twins. They were what do they call it, fraternal twins. <laughs> they were at crossroads. Gnosticism rejected the Christian sacramental view of existence. body and spirit, world and heaven, immanence and transcendence together. The Gnostic would relentlessly impugn half of it. deride it, hated it, denied it. Sought to escape it, whatever. It hated the earth, hated the body. For the ancient Gnostic was all spirit, heaven, transcendence, escape from this crappy earth. That was it. And Christianity is having none of it. it They say, no, creation is good. Because God created it. And philosophically speaking, therefore it must be good. And religiously speaking, we know God sent Jesus Christ down in human form, taking flesh. And therefore there must be something good in it as well for that reason. So right away... Gnosticism and Christianity were at war. And it's a war that's with us to this day. And it's been raging for 2,000 years, often below the surface. And yeah, Gnosticism and its ties, in my opinion, to postmodernism this is going to be the subject of ongoing discussion in future episodes. This is just the opening salvo. Alright, let's do some lightning segments. There's one thing about living like Nassim Taleb. You know, not reading the news, and in my case, scorning pop culture. It's <laughs> that I'm often late to the game. Last Sunday was one of those blessed days. I had nothing to do. Which means I read a ton. I dinked around at my new house. I took leisurely walks. And then I heard at 3.05, I got a text saying that Kobe had died, which is 41 minutes after TMZ broke the story. I see Maria like five minutes later and tell her, and she's like, well, yeah, who doesn't know that? <laughs> 41 freaking minutes. <laughs> I'm often also late to new products. Uh, one of my sons recently introduced me to Bang. <laughs> Have you ever heard of this thing? It's, it's been around for a couple of years, I guess, but again, I'm, I'm always late. It's a low-calorie energy drink. 300 milligrams of caffeine for every 16 ounces. I think it's called bam because that's what your heart does after drinking it. <laughs> the first time I tried it, I literally, I used a shot glass and paced myself. It took me two days to get through it. I do the same thing with 5-hour energy, by the way. I'm just not sure I trust that stuff, but if I drink a 5-hour energy, I usually drink it over the course of a day, four or five different sips. You know, basically I get five one-hour energies. You know, I want to try that. If you, find, if you find drinking a full five-hour energy like I do, kind of overwhelming, you know, I may sip it throughout the day. A good friend of mine also does it. He said he has good success with it. Yeah, I know. I, I ought to just start drinking coffee. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> I've tried to develop a taste for coffee. I just can't stand it. And I'm not giving up, by the way. I'm gonna keep keep palm forward. Same with tomatoes and bourbon, coffee, tomatoes, and bourbon. They're three things I wish I liked, but I just can't stand. I think it's kind of how most of us feel about the homeless, <laughs> if we're only honest with ourselves. All right, I hate to go to the same well in consecutive episodes, but I have to do it. Gotta go back to econ talk. Co listen to the January 13, 2020 show with Adam Mintner. Secondhand, it's all about people getting rid of their excess stuff. That Econ Talk episode could fill a one thing file. The one thing file, you may recall, is the suggested habit of writing down one thing, or maybe more than one thing, that you learn from a podcast episode, an article, a book, a lecture, whatever it is, and you put that in a separate file podcast episode is filled with one things one thing number one remember what I mentioned three minutes ago about Nassim Taleb and he doesn't really pay attention to the news and it eventually reaches ears and I'm kind of the same way well that was me and Marie Kondo she wrote a book called The Life Changing Magic of Tidying Up the Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing Sounds great. They it came out in 2014. And it became a bestseller. And now I guess it's a Netflix series. And me, I'd never heard of it. As Anna Mittner drops her name on Econ Talk. And Russ Roberts said, Hey, uh, Eric Chesky's listening. We need to explain who she is. Okay, he didn't exactly say that. But he did say, For the one or two people who might be listening who don't know who she is, please explain. I'll be honest with you, that, that kind of hurt. <laughs> to be even more honest, uh, that happens to be at least once a month. You know, well, I don't know who she is, but for this person who's living under a rock, you better explain who she is. I'm just like, I, I didn't know. <laughs> What's even more hurtful is I actually know for a fact that some people consider that type of thing a form of ignorance. And I have three instances in my life. First time, I was at a Detroit bar after work with a bunch of young lawyer friends of mine. I used to work downtown Detroit. And we were with our dates or our wives. And a friend of mine had a kind of a a tense relationship with his girlfriend. And she mentioned some celebrity. And he didn't know who she was or something. And he said, he goes, how do you know that? And she was just dripping with contempt. And my friend was extraordinarily smart. (laughs) But dripping with contempt. And she says, it was in People Magazine. Some of us read. <laughs> that is 100% true story. Because my friend didn't read People Magazine, she was just looking down her nose at him. <laughs> to be honest, I didn't know People Magazine had pros in it, other than, you know, photo captions. <laughs> but to her, because my friend didn't read People Magazine, he was, you know, he was a baboon. And another situation, a friend asked about uh, another friend of mine. Something about a John Grisham novel or some crap like that, some current novel. And for some reason, I knew for a fact that he hadn't read it. And he says, oh, "Of course," he goes, he goes, "He doesn't read." It just kind of, kind of snarking because you know my friend wasn't reading something on the New York Times bestseller list by John Grisham or whatever pop author we're dealing with. But again, looking down his nose. And this third instance I have actually was directed right at me. Some guy asked me about something that was reported in the local newspaper three weeks earlier or something. I said I hadn't seen it, and with dripping with intellectual contempt, said, "Don't you ever read?" And <laughs> that last one was a spiritual test. I tell you, I tell you what, it was probably twenty five years ago. I was a poor lawyer in my small town, so I had to, I had to bite my tongue. But to this day, <laughs> I recall the arrogance welling up in me as like. I get up at 4 a.m. every morning just so I can read like Vogelin, Dostoevsky, Chesterton (laughs) and others. I often get up at 5 o'clock during the weekdays. You know, 4 o'clock on Saturdays and Sundays, 5 o'clock on the weekdays. I have to go to war with Marie (laughs) on our limited budget to try to create space for buying more books. And you have... The idiocy to accuse me of not reading because I don't read the freaking newspaper, which is considered the lowest form of prose for the past two hundred years has been the laughing stock of every half educated person <laughs> in Western civilization. And you think you're better than me because you read the freaking newspaper? Yeah, well, I didn't I didn't do all that. Uh, <laughs> I guess I gave some sluggish response like uh, I read sometimes and let it go. But this to this day, I bump into that guy around town. And I swear he still holds me in contempt. Now, he just may be an arrogant ass just in general. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I actually like the guy overall. But I swear he's just like still looking like, yeah, this is the dude who doesn't read the newspaper. He He's ignorant. And which is frustrating because there's a ton of other legitimate things he could hold me in contempt for. <laughs> but but not reading? That ain't one of them. Like, I'm I'm a jackass and I have <laughs> all sorts of faults, but, uh, not reading, that's not one of them. Anyway, getting back to Marie Kondo. I've now listened to that five minutes of banter on Econ Talk, and I am now an expert. <laughs> but her, her message resonated with me, and it's apparently resonated with a ton of people. That's why she has a Netflix show. And I guess her number one principle is, if you pick something up and it doesn't spark joy, throw it out. Sure, I agree with that, but it's not a bad standard. And right now Marie and I are in the process of packing up 28 years of married life with nine people and moving to a new house. I'm gonna apply some sort of standard. I've already gotten rid of probably literally 20-30 pounds of stuff out of my basement library here in the old house. And I'm not I'm not I've scratched the surface, I'm about halfway, I'll probably do another 20-30 pounds, but I'm gonna get more aggressive. This Marie Kondo has kind of inspired me to be more aggressive and throwing stuff out. for the one thing file. Point number two all from this econ talk hoarding is a spectrum disorder kind of like sexuality I guess <laughs> now that's not a psychological diagnosis but I guess among people who know something about hoarding um, there's, there's something to it we all tend to hoard uh, things give us a sense of security and my question is, who among us doesn't think that they might be happy as just jettisoning every item of personal property and living like a monk in a bare room with just a handful of things? Uh, I used to think that was just an Eric thing. Well, maybe an Eric thing and a handful of the brave who actually do it, like the hermits and monks. But it's not. Uh, talk to Econ can talk. I think there's that that inclination of all of us that just just get rid of all this crap. I also remember a, a segment on Seinfeld that built into it. Kramer at one point, he got rid of his refrigerator. And everything he had to eat was just fresh this, fresh that. He told Jerry, I really like to deprive myself of things. I'm very monastic. <laughs> Here's one thing number three from the Econ Talk episode. This is quite sad lonely old people use the secondhand market like goodwill stores as social interaction. They'll bring in one small item of insignificant value to goodwill just so they can donate it and in the process get some small talk out of it. Tell the the workers where they got it, what it's about, things like that. But gives them some sort of form of social interaction. Now this Adam Mittner on the show, the guest, he didn't say it but I think his point was these people are (laughs) a drain on the goodwill store's labor resources. Maybe not a huge drain, but you know they have work to do, and these people want to come in as a form of social interaction. I guess it's a pretty common phenomenon that they have to deal with. And again, it's all kind of sad. You know, the whole show is about secondhand things, and you wonder if these old people feel like secondhand things. Yeah, and that whole thing about older people using commerce as a form of social interaction—it's it's real to me as a lawyer. You know, Abe Lincoln once famously said. Time is a lawyer's stock and trade. And it's something the non lawyer just doesn't get. Time is the only thing a lawyer has to make money with. And we literally bill in six minute increments. Clients pay by the minute. There's really no other profession like it. I, mean, I guess accountants come closest. <laughs> if a lawyer isn't billing, he is literally losing money. Literally. I don't, unless you walked in those shoes, I don't think you can get your head around this, uh, (laughs) existence perverting way of making money. If you're not working, you're literally losing money. You know, for a busy lawyer who bills at 250 bucks an hour, you know, I mean busy, I mean one that can't get all his work done in a work week. Five minutes of small talk is literally costing 20 bucks. So now juxtapose. The existence of a lawyer, especially a Christian lawyer, with that lonely widow who just wants someone to talk with. And as a result, the legal consultation is lasting far longer than it should. This happens to me all the time. Where does a Christian lawyer draw the line? I mean, when does the billing clock stop ticking and the charitable clock start talking? <laughs> There is no answer. Well, I know my more shark mercenary <laughs> colleagues but like, the clock ticks the whole freaking time. She's sitting in your office taking up your time, and at, you know, five bucks a minute, <laughs> yeah, that's five bucks she's costing you because she's just rambling on about whatever because she wants social interaction. They're freaking bill every minute of it. And that's not illegitimate. But I think it's illegitimate for the Christian lawyer. And again, I'm not impugning my. My lawyer friends who are also christians who and who adopt that billing attitude i I'm, I'm not i mean I get it. They're in your office, it's a place of business it's a it's a profession. they know they're playing two hundred and fifty bucks an hour, or whatever it is. Not unreasonable to ding them for that time. I'm not saying that, but you'd have to be an idiot not to realize that the consultation at point has ended, and now it has gone into social interaction or small talk. You'd have to be a semi-idiot not to realize at some point this person is going off-tangent because she just needs someone to talk to. She just wants to be heard. The Christian lawyer now has to deal with these two competing goods. One, providing for his family. I need this time to bill. I have to leave at 5 o'clock today for my kid's soccer game, whatever it is. And this woman wants to take up 25 minutes for small talk. And I'm now losing money because she's talking. And you have to balance the fact that she's taking money from you against your calling as a Christian lawyer to help the lonely. Let's face it, you know, back in the old days you used to give alms, give alms, give alms, give alms, which basically means giving money, giving money to the poor. In this freaking culture, and I know people are going to scream at me for this, but we don't have that many poor people. I mean, yeah, relatively speaking, yes, but in a historical sense compared to what people had in previous ages... In a culture sense, what we have in the United States compared to what they have in, say, Bangladesh, we don't have poor people over here. We have lonely people over here. So in my opinion, giving time is like the new giving alms. In the old days, you didn't want to give alms because no one freaking had excess wealth. Or, you know, very few people had, had excess wealth. And to, to give alms really sucked. <laughs> Today, it's like giving time really sucks because like, no one has excess time. So it's really giving time is like the new giving alms if you really want to sacrifice. And trust me, <laughs> as a lawyer and a selfish person, that's really hard. <laughs> I mean, I am very jealous of my time, and so this is a hard thing for me to say because I know I fail miserably at this giving time. But anyway, this little example I'm giving you, you know having to balance being a lawyer who makes money off his time versus being a Christian and a woman who obviously just needs to spend some time with her, and turning the billing clock off, and spending time with her. That's the type of thing that comes up every day. It's going to come up every day in your life. It's why prudence is a cardinal virtue. And that's exactly what prudence is. weighing circumstances and choosing the correct course among two or more good courses. Prudence isn't... Deciding whether to cheat on your wife or not. That's obvious. <laughs> prudence is saying no, these are two these are two good things. These are three good things, ten good things. I gotta choose which one I'm gonna do here. I have to balance, blend, whatever you wanna call it. You gotta figure it out, you have to have prudence. And this one final point, can you imagine how hard it is to exercise prudence when you don't even know what the goods are? And this is one of Jordan Peterson's arguments about modern society and what postmodernism has done, although I don't think it's just postmodernism, I think it's modernism in general has done this. It's like they've they've dumped people without even knowing what goods are. They don't they not get to the virtue of prudence. They can't even develop prudence because they don't know what goods should be competing. You now there are no standards, all is relative. I mean, so many young people today, heck not even young people, I mean older people that they don't get the point. They don't get the prudence. They're they're stuck on should I bang this prostitute or not bang this prostitute? <laughs> that that's that's where they are. I can't tell you how many young people I know whose parents literally teach them things like you need to be number one, you need to be the best, you got to you got to succeed by competition, you got beat you got beat down. These people, it's just like no, you need to love. You need to try to become a saint. Yeah, And those are two things I believe wholeheartedly. I believe in gentleness. Gentleness. Loving people. Becoming a saint. Things I agree with, I believe in 100%. And I feel miserably at all three of them. But at least I know I'm on the right track. <laughs> or, or the, the train may not have left the station yet. But <laughs> it not in my case. But I admit, at least I'm on the track. If I, get the, if I get the engine going, I know I'm going in the right place. And so many people... You know, they're caught up on dominating, being number one. Uh, I remember one friend of mine telling me, you know, being successful means never having to say you're sorry. You never say you're sorry for anything. And I've known people like that. They won't say sorry for anything. It's like, that's, that's like being a man. That's being a tough guy. That's being successful. And it's just, what a horrible standard. And those people never, never get to exercise prudence. Because in their world, they're competing goods or bads. <laughs> so, anyway, count your blessings if you're, if you're a Catholic or a Christian, or if you have traditional morality. You had good parents who raised you with a traditional sense of norms. You don't have to be a Catholic or a Christian, although it helps immensely. Uh, just, just going back to some traditional norms of, your know, hard work, providing for your family, being faithful to your spouse, things like that can, can get you a long, long way. Alright, that's a wrap for this week. Go check out UdemonPodcast.com if you want more information. Very detailed show notes. I think you'll get some out of it. If you want to go back and re-listen to something I said, you can go to the show notes and probably fix on it pretty quickly. Also, by the way, I do welcome emails. I'm not always real good at responding, but EricShusky at gmail.com if you can spell my name. And you've heard of Google and Gmail, you can you can shoot me an email. As always, thanks for listening.